the Vet Tech here. I'm here today to talk about wildlife rehabilitation and veterinary medicine. I have Danielle with me today. She is an RVT, a registered veterinary technician in the state of Missouri. So welcome, Danielle. Why don't you tell us a little bit about yourself? So I work at Excelsior Springs Animal Clinic. I'm in Excelsior Springs, Missouri. Been there since 2016. I um, That was actually my first kind of real time working with wildlife. I did a lot of exotic work before that, whenever I started working at Banfield before, and we did, you know, pocket pets, birds, and things. I worked for PetSmart before then, and I worked in the pet care department. I was a pet care manager there. So kind of my journey with non-cats and dogs, kind of the, the conventional species kind of started then, and it kind of worked from there. Growing up, I, I really had a passion for wildlife, kind of grew from there at working and whenever I kind of came to Excelsior, it really kind of fit. And I was really excited to see that this is what they did. And it was actually my driving force and wanting to work there. And, and so being there has just kind of really opened this whole new, really exciting world for me. Well, we're really excited to have you with us today. And I'd like to start out, you brought up some really great points just in your history that I'd like to touch on a little bit. Is that why you decided to become a veterinary technician? Did you have this budding love for helping exotics and wildlife as a veterinary technician? It's always been something. I we grew up with horses and animals and you know, kind of the whole, I guess, umbrella statement of I love animals and I want to help them when I grow up. <laughs> the cliche um, one. <laughs> the yeah. cliche, you know, thing for us. But, you know, it really was, and, and it was something my, both my mom and my dad kind of called out whenever I was little and they're like, I know what you're going to do when you grow up. And it really was something that I wanted to do, but actually I wanted to be a teacher as well. And I actually started my educational journey to be a teacher and uh, I stopped and said, I just, I can't, I can't do it. And then I, I went back to school and I wanted to be a tech and I love teaching people about animals and how to care for their animals. And here's what we need to do. And so I have combined my, my love for education. I still really like education, but it's not my right fit. And so I kind of really like pairing my love for animals and my knowledge for animals and the ed my love for education. And I, I love pairing both of those passions together. And so that's what I kind of did. Yeah. Yeah. You took the long way around, like, like a lot of us. <laughs> yeah. So no yeah. worries. So how is your practice set up then? Because you, you do the wildlife rehabilitation within your practice, but my understanding is that it's a primarily small animal practice. So that's, that's your main focus. And then you kind of do the rehab as, as an aside. Is that right? Yes. So we are mainly small animal dogs, cats. Um, we do see the occasional exotics. We do guinea pigs, we do potbelly pigs, we do, you know, all the small, uh, you know, snakes and birds. And so those sorts of things, which was the other driving force for me to be there. I got to still do that part of my passion. And then my doctor, Dr. Rucker, who he has been doing wildlife for, oh, I could put a number on it and he wouldn't like that. Um, <laughs> lots of years. And that is something that he has always done on the side. So this is something that he does as his own passion. And so it is something that we, we do in addition to 
It is not something that is uh, income based on our practice. It is something that we do for the love of it. And so it's something that we kind of do on our own, I guess, on our own time. We come in before work. Sometimes we have to stay after work. He takes them home when they're done to slowly try to release them, to integrate them back into wild. We also take part in that. We, we help release them. And so it is, it's something that we make the time in our day. Sometimes it's during lunch to feed sort of thing. And it's before work. Sometimes we're there an hour and a half before our shifts to feed. Sometimes we're there after close to take care of the animals, you know, these wild animals, you know, it, it's an, it's an extra part than just our dogs and cats and, and exotics and these guys things. It's, it's, it's the extra that we go to take care of these guys. Well, that's great. I mean, that it's necessary. These wild animals need help too. How, how do you guys typically come about acquiring these rehabilitation cases? So it's kind of interesting. The most common, the most common things that we see are orphans right now, especially we right, have bunny rabbit, bunny, season, bunny rabbits. Right? Yes. And squirrels. I think we have 14 squirrels right now. Um, wow. We have so many squirrels. Uh, There's so much fun. Um, I think Dr. Rucker has two fox kits at his house. So it's, we're looking at orphans. People are finding these little guys. And then in a month or a month, month and a half, we'll start seeing fawns. And it's really sad about fawns is that they're kidnapped. Most of the times these fawns are kidnapped. So they're found out in the field and they're like, oh no, mom's abandoned them. Well, it's not true. Moms leave them. Fawns don't have a scent. And so they don't actually come back to these babies except at night. And people see them and they're like, mom hasn't been here all day. And they take them. And so cute. public service announcement, don't kidnap don't a fawn. Take them. Don't take them. <laughs> <laughs> Perfect. So, yeah, and, and so that is one of the, those are the most two common things we see. We do see injuries are uh, birds of prey. Uh, so our hawks, eagles, and those guys, owls. I, my minimal understanding of wildlife rehab in veterinary medicine is that there are quite a few different rules in between states. So for example, I'm here in Washington. This is my minimal educational contribution to this podcast episode is that Washington state requires wildlife rehabilitation permit with exemptions for veterinarians being that a veterinarian can provide stabilization for transport to her rehabilitation facility or provide humane euthanasia. So tell me about, it sounds like you guys have a pretty wide scope with your rehab. Are the laws pretty close to the same though? You guys have a, a permit to perform the rehabilitation or how does that work in Missouri for you? Yes. So, so how, how it reads is wildlife cannot be held for more than 120 days released or disposed of except by an authorized agent of the department. Permits um, are only issued to um, doctors of veterinary medicine or others that have had extensive training or experience in wildlife rehab. So my doctor had a permit and then it's a lot, it is a lot of work to kind of keep up your permit. So we work, so there's a um, place, Lakeside Nature Center. We have conservation departments, uh, agents that work there. We work under her permit. So it's kind of like a little flow chart. So we do kind of everything under her and we have rules and, and things that we have to follow in order to do that. So there's certain species and different species have different regulations that we have to follow. Uh, yeah, species, 
it's, I did notice that in Washington, there was, it listed out, gosh, every wild creature you could possibly imagine. And then it had specific rules for each creature. So yes. this seems like a pretty in-depth endeavor to be taking on. It is. And so I'm so happy that Dr. Rucker knows it to the key. <laughs> Um, so yeah, species authorized to be held or limited by specific t- permits because you're like, oh man, this could be really serious. And like certain, uh, certain birds like can't cross state lines and then you get a bald eagle in and then it's like, hold on, there's certain steps we have to follow depending on if this was a civilian and did the civilian call the conservation department. And then it's like, we can't transport it even if we have like this bird is in dire need and we can't depending on how many hands this bird transferred, we have to make sure we follow the certain steps and contact the certain people to get certain approval. If it, yeah, it is, it's, it's quite the balancing act and things. It's a really interesting process to do all these things. How they picked 120 days. I don't know that answer. (laughs) Because some of these, they come in as as little tiny babies. And then it's like, what if they came in late in the season and then they need to stay all winter? So there's certain guidelines we have to follow. And so we do get the conservation agents do come in periodically to do checks in the clinic. They do kennel checks, facility checks, cage requirement checks, depending on how many animals are in what size cages, just like they would do in a vet clinic. Right. You know, what is your facility like? Are these animals being kept in appropriate cages? Are they being cared for properly? If they have the same standards for the wild animals as they would for domestic animals, which is fantastic, which is what it should be. So anytime we see our officer, we're like, hey, and he just comes on back. He doesn't wait because, you know, we're like, that's come on back. You have nothing Um, to hide, right? Exactly. We're not scared to see him because we're like, you know, we, we, we do what we know we're supposed to do. And we have medical records they have charts they have sheets we everything is documented and I mean it's a it's the pretty it's not just hey we just keep them and we feed them and we let them go it is a it's documented the whole way through yeah actual structured medical care for these patients their patients is is Mm -hmm. what it boils down to so that's awesome to hear I'd like to circle back around I've heard you mention a couple times through our conversation here and it kind of ties back to another episode that I had with Dr. Feist and large animal medicine and it it sounds like this kind of ties in a little bit with that learning curve that we discussed with her that there's seasons to wildlife rehabilitation it sounds like you said squirrels and fawns and bunnies are really popular right now. So tell me, tell me a little bit more about that. That sounds interesting that it makes this kind of neat correlation to large animal medicine with the seasonality of your patient. Yes. So right now uh, we've got squirrels and rabbits. Fawns will be coming, like I said, in about a month, month and a half. Fox kits. We are just now starting to see fox kits come. Not quite. I'm trying to remember the dates on fox kits. Coyotes are not quite yet. They'll be a little bit later in the season, but then squirrels will have, we're talking a little bit later in the season. So in the fall, we'll, we'll get, usually we'll get a little bit, we'll get another kind of rush of squirrels, acorn season, basically. We'll usually get acorn more. <laughs> we'll, we'll usually see some more uh, Who knew squirrels. acorn season would factor in? Okay. You know, and then we always get the stragglers. Well, I mean, it is. And that's the thing we end up getting is every, it seems like every year we will almost always get 
some squirrel babies that were like, I don't know what your mom was thinking. She had some late babies like, and it is, it's always to the best of them. It does. And we're pushing and we're pushing winter and fall. And we were, you know, it's trying to get these babies grown up enough and, and reintroduced into the wild. But the timing, we have to be considerate of the timing. Are we going to, are we going to be able to release, you know, whatever this, whatever the animal might be, if it's raised from a baby, will we be able to release it in a timely fashion before the weather turns for them to be able to find a home and to have food stores before winter? So it's, it's kind of a whole process. We have to think about the time. And if we can't think that, especially squirrels, that we know that they've got to be able to have a home and create stores for winter. If we can't, then, then we, we make the choice to possibly overwinter them or at the, either at the clinic or Dr. Rucker has large pens where he can safely overwinter them and, or prov- and provide them food all winter. That sounds awesome. So you are an RVT. So you went through the typical two-year vet tech degree. You work as a small animal technician primarily. What, if you have done, what additional coursework have you done outside of that veterinary technology degree for wildlife rehabilitation? As far as continuing education, my, my doctor does continuing education. He does, uh, he's a part of the National Wildlife Rehabilitation Association. Um, And so he shares all of his knowledge that he comes back for. He goes to their symposiums. But then I, myself, I go to, or I don't go to, I do online continuing education. So different courses that I can find. The National Wildlife Rehabilitators Association does have online courses. We like acronyms. I know. I'm like, oh, (laughs) (laughs) I don't know why they can't just make that easy. But (laughs) Leferber actually has online courses. And the reason that I really like them is because they have exotic online CE as well as they throw in some wildlife CE as well. So they just hit two stone, you know, two birds, one stone uh, for me. So uh, that that kind of, I really like their site because I can learn about, I can do CE for exotics and I can learn wildlife stuff as well. So I have kind of stuck to their website to do some, some online learning. What's the most common wildlife issue that you guys see in your area? And the, the, uh, the orphans, the kidnappings, which sounds so awful to say it, but it really is. It's, I mean, it is, it's a, and to convince, I say convince, to to coerce these people to put them back is really like, it's a struggle sometimes these, I mean, these people, I mean, because they do it out of the good of their hearts, seeing these babies and they're alone and they're not moving. And so we have to kind of talk to them about looking at the signs. So what is a sign when you see a fawn? And these are things that if you have people that, you know, what do you do if you find a deer in the middle of a field? So signs of a healthy baby deer, fawn, finding a fawn, you know, what is a healthy fawn? It looks like a fawn. Things that are not healthy, curled ears, if their ears have kind of curled in, almost like a Scottish fold, anything about a Scottish mm-hmm. fold where their ears kind of turn in, that is, a, that is a sign of an unhealthy fawn. And then ticks, if a fawn has ticks, mama has not been taking care of it. And that is a sign that that fawn needs help. And so that's kind of the things we talk to these people about is, you know, what does this fawn look like? Does it have ticks or its ears folded? If these things are not seen, then we need to leave the fawn alone. 
that's the same thing. Whenever we talk about bunnies, my dog just found bunnies. Then we talk to them about alternatives. So I can't put it back because my dog's in the yard. So we talk to them about laundry baskets, taking a laundry basket, sacrificing a laundry basket for the good of bunnies. And, <laughs> you know, and all these different things. We talk about putting these squirrels that they find at the bottom of the trees, taking a, uh, a box and putting it back into the tree. All these things to try our best. Wildlife are best out in the wild. The mothers do want their babies back. You know, those are the most common things we see. And, and we do our best to say, can we, can we do what we can? Can we give them 24 to 36 hours back out in the wild? And the reason that's our magic number is, this sounds terrible, but by that point in time, the babies will cry. And then when the babies cry, they call to mom because they're like, well, I've moved them already. When the babies cry, the mother will hear them. And if the, if the mother has been moving the babies and, or if you've moved a baby, the mother knows their babies cry and she'll come and find them and she will take them back to wherever the babies have been. And, right. then, and, then, the and then waiting for, for that time and bringing them to a veterinary professional, they're, they're in right. good hands, right? Right. To right. be rehabilitated and recovered at that point. Exactly. And then we'll take them. If at that point we get, we say, we give it the good effort. And if we can't stop, and if, if mother has not taken them, then we take them in. Yeah. So, yeah. so tell us about your most recent or maybe even your favorite of all time case. So um, while it didn't have the most ideal ending, he was my favorite case. You might get, might get emotional. But he was a coyote. He was an adult coyote, and he was hit on the road. A good Samaritan picked him up, and he was uh, laterally recumbent, and they brought him in the back of a truck. It was a rainy day and just almost non-responsive, and we brought him in. I went out, put a muzzle on him, and I brought him in, and we had him inside in one of our kennels. And we kind of just started treatment from there. We gave him mannitol and we just started treatments. I mean, it was just from there, just being like, you know, hit by car. I mean, we pulled blood, checked his values. We gave him Rimadil. We gave him, uh, we continued mannitol trying to continue with, well, I guess his name was Wiley. Um, of course. Of course. I know. And we, he came in the day after Halloween. We had him for almost three months. And he got to the point where from, uh, he went from laterally recumbent to he was able to finally walk. Um, I was his main caretaker. And he, I mean, just the journey that we had, because this story could go on probably for an hour. But <laughs> I know it's like, oh, but from the journey that we had, it was just created like a, a sense of, I don't know, uh, a bond in a way just uh, of solidifying this is why I'm here even though his story didn't end up in a way I wanted it to because he was never able to fully regain vision and so he was not somebody that we could release into the wild and because he's a coyote there's a concern for rabies and with that um, sanctuaries would not take him and rehab facilities would not take him we kept him for as long as we safely could regarding the Missouri law with the time that we could take him. Yeah. Um, and so it was, it was, we did everything. I mean, it was, he knew my smell. I could walk into our kennel room and he would look up and he'd stand cause he knew his kennel and he would stand up and he'd stick his nose up 
and he knew my smell and he could hear me. And he just, you know, it was one of those things where we just had an understanding of, and then he knew our, he knew what our thing was and he knew how I got him out of the kennel and when he would go out to his outside run. And then it was time to go into the inside run. I would, he knew our cues. He knew whenever I would, you know, how, how we did our day. Every day that I worked, we did the same pattern and he knew what we were going to do. And he, he knew from the moment I walked in because his nose would go up and he would stand on his kennel and he knew what we were supposed to do. And it was just such a, I don't know, it was such an experience, I guess. Yeah. And, and, you know, even. Well, that's even, always great to, yeah. to have those moments where it really solidifies your choice and your journey in life. And those cases and those patients, regardless of species are always special to us. And we carry those stories with us yeah. always. And yeah. I really appreciate you sharing that with us. I know it's a little bit of a heart-wrenching story for you, but this is why we do it. Yeah. And that's, that's the bottom line. So to kind of wrap up here today, I would like you to share some specific advice you may have regarding wildlife rehab for a budding technician. We kind of already talked about the CE that you like to do. Is there anything else, maybe certain areas of the U.S. that you know of, or certain clinics, things that people, flags that people should be looking out for if they want to go into something similar to what you're doing? Not like certain areas. I mean, wildlife rehab centers in general, just in your area, look for rehab centers. They are always, always looking for volunteers. I mean, that's going to be across the United States, across the board. They will always look for volunteers. They will train you on how to do anything. They will never say no, period. They, I mean, they're always struggling for people to help them and they will, they will teach you. I know at our clinic where, I mean, anybody that calls and says, Hey, I want to learn. I want to, Hey, can I help? Can I come in shadow? We're always like, heck yeah, come on in. And if you're willing to work, we will, we're willing to have you help. Um, and you know, finding clinics, some do it on a small scale. You know, we, we do it on a bit larger scale, but there's a couple clinics around that just do, they do some squirrels. They do a couple raccoons. They, they just have a couple people in their clinics that, that want to do it. And that's it. But there are some, they will still probably take, Hey, can I come and help every once in a while? You can call your um, local conservation department. They will know who does it and who doesn't. And, and that would be a place to start as well. Other clinics may know some people they may know, may not. Um, That's what I was, I was wondering, just kind of getting yourself in the network. It sounds like the the people with the squirrels would probably know people like you guys that do like the birds of prey and things like that. uh, If people are interested in in different types of wildlife, it sounds like, yeah. Yep. They're not dogs and cats, but they need help just as much as dogs and cats do yeah, as well. Yeah. Absolutely. Well, I like to wrap up with tips and tricks of the day. Did you have any other advice or anything, Danielle, that you wanted to add? Yeah, I feel like everybody needs to know how to do a good towel hold on ah, a cat. <laughs> yes, yes. All right, so Danielle's tip for the day, towel holds. So... Uh, the late Sophia Yen, for those of you who do not know who this amazing, amazing doctor was, um, they now, I believe it's uh, Cattle Dog Productions is yes, who they is. have kind of continued her legacy on. You can look, you can go on uh, just a Google search for Dr. Sophia Yen and you'll come up with tons of information, but you can go Sophia Yen towel hold and you will come up with videos. And, and she will, it is, she does a walkthrough on how to do these towel holds. They're amazing. 
we kind of last f latched it last ditch efforts for scruffing cats doing a proper towel hold for cats will save you guys so much trouble so much stress for you guys for the cats it is safety holds they're amazing everybody needs to know how to do a proper towel hold. <laughs> yes <laughs> i totally agree and my tip for you guys today is to carry a notebook with you so we learned so much on this episode today and I should have my notebook out and writing down some things that we learned from Danielle today about wildlife rehabilitation. Always carry that notebook in your scrub pocket. There's always things that you can write down to research later if you don't know a lot about it. Sometimes I just straight tell students, you don't know this, they write it down, go home and read about it, talk about it more after you've done some reading and some education. So carry your notebook with you throughout the day, throughout shadowing even. Always love to see people getting their notebooks out when we're shadowing and writing down things to learn about later. So that wraps us up for today, guys. Feel free to follow me on Instagram and also on Facebook at Kendra, the vet tech. If you have any questions, you can reach me through those, or I also have email Kendra, the vet tech at gmail.com. Thanks, Danielle. Thank you so much. Thanks for joining us today, guys. Bye.